You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. One year ago today, we began uh, this series, uh, Walking Through the Gospel of Mark, Following Jesus in His Footsteps. And we have learned already so much about him, about his power, about his authority, about his deity, about his humanity, about his compassion, about his grace. Up to, the point, up to this point, Jesus and his disciples have been ministering throughout all of Galilee and, and in, even into Gentile territory. But now that we're closing out chapter 9 and we're cresting into chapter 10, we're seeing a major shift in the direction and the determination of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. From here on out, we're going to see him no longer ministering in Galilee, but he's going to be working his way towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And along the way, we're going to see Jesus teaching his disciples all the more as he's preparing them for the days ahead. He's preparing them to follow him to his ultimate humility. And what we're going to learn is that to be be a true disciple, to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, the way up is down. Jesus must increase. We must decrease. That to be great in the kingdom of God is to be the least. That to be first is to be the last. And so as we seek here in this church to be authentic disciples ourselves, we're going to see that against our natural tendencies, against our flesh, we're not given to humility naturally. In fact, we're given to pride. And today, the, the, the main point I want you to take home with you is that there is no room for pride on the road to humility. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Capernaum, and when when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the freedom to open it before us. We thank you that you've preserved your word over the generations. Lord, that every jot and tittle in this book will not be destroyed. It is your word and it is your word forever. And Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly through it that we can discover who we are, that we are lost sinners apart from you. But we also have discovered that Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior. He is our Messiah and that he has come to set us free from our sin to bring you glory. Lord, would you use this word today in our lives? Would you produce humility where there's pride? Would you bring us to a point of confession and repentance? Lord, we, we confess that we are all prone to pride. And Lord, only you can produce humility in us, and we ask for you to do that today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's no room for pride on the road of humility. If you watch the news uh, lately or you browse the latest social media, it doesn't take long to discover that there's no shortage of pride in this world, right? You know, for those who are on Twitter or, or Facebook, uh, would you say there's a lot of self-promotion going on? There's a lot of pride out there. Promotion and, and ignorance and pride is, is alive and well. By and large, the world and humanity is, is pretty impressed with ourselves, right? We love ourselves, and we love sharing ourselves with the world. Have you noticed, if you're online, especially I've noticed in Twitter, some of the most proud statements start with, I am H-O, in my humble opinion. When you start looking for humility, when you start to search for true humility, authentic meekness, what you're going to soon discover is there's a great void. And even as Christians, we're prone to this as well. As we share certain opinions or convictions, we may say, well, well we do this, or, or why would you do that? Pride can often be found lurking in those shadows. Brothers and sisters, Jesus today is going to teach us that there's no room for pride on the road of humility. So Jesus here is just returning from the mountaintop, remember, the transfiguration. He comes down with his three disciples. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. And just imagine this. These three disciples out of the twelve, they went up the mountain and they got to see Jesus' glory. Could you just imagine the pride that was beginning to rise up in their hearts. Wow, we got to see Jesus transform right before us. We got to see his glory. We got to see Elijah and Moses, but the other nine didn't. Jesus doesn't even want us to tell them that we've seen these things. He must think that we're pretty special, right? This is just some of the thoughts that I'm thinking could be going on in their minds because it's so natural to us. It's so natural to me. And so it's time here for another lesson for his disciples. It's another lesson for us. And today we're going to see, as we're looking at humility and pride, we're going to see four reasons why there is no room for pride on the road of humility. And the first one is this. It's because pride doubts. Pride doubts. Humility believes. 
verses 30 to 32. Pride doubts, pride questions, pride disbelieves, pride clouds our understanding. You know, as Jesus just healed that epileptic boy, that the demon-possessed boy, he just delivered him, and then he told his disciples that one could only come out through prayer. Verse 30 says, they went on from there, and then they passed through Galilee. They're going south from Caesarea Philippi down to Galilee, to Capernaum. And he didn't want anyone to know. So as you remember in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we see over and over again, every time Jesus would heal somebody, he often would want it to be kept silent, right? He wanted it to be kept to themselves. Even the people he would heal, he would ask them to keep it to themselves. You ever wonder why he wanted that? Well, for one, he wasn't ready to be captured yet. He wasn't ready to be jailed and beaten and crucified yet. It wasn't his time. But secondly, and especially in this case, we see here that he wants to get away from the crowds. And he would do this often to pray. We already studied a lot of that. But in this case, we see he wants to train his disciples. Verse 31 says, for or because he was teaching his disciples. That's why he got away. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the second time Jesus has just shared this. It's the second time in a row in the last couple of pages of your Bible that he is sharing about his death and resurrection. And he's saying directly to his beloved disciples, that the Son of Man, this is his favorite name for himself, has ties back to Daniel. He, he's going to face the ultimate penalty of death. But then he's going to ultimately rise from the grave three days later. This isn't the first time that he's shared this in chapter 8. Right after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He's already shared this with them just recently. But do you remember how they responded to him back then? You know, instead of, instead of believing him, Peter stood up and what did he do? He rebuked Jesus. You see, they weren't understanding. They didn't believe and so we see here Jesus repeating this lesson again, and we're actually going to see he's going to do it again uh, in the coming chapters as well. But, but here we see him sharing this very clearly, very simply. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And so how do the disciples respond to him here? Do they remember how Jesus called out Peter the last time for his unbelief? Remember how Jesus responded to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do they remember how Jesus just finished resurrecting this poor boy from the dead? It was a picture of his coming resur uh, resurrection. Did the three disciples that went up the mountain remember Jesus in his glorified state, his resurrected, glorified state? You sure think they would remember those things. But what does the text say here? Verse 32. It says, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
we see this happening over and over. The disciples are slow to understand what in the world is wrong with these guys. How much more can Jesus show them? Are they that dense? What's going on here? Maybe fishermen and tax collectors weren't the right guys. Maybe Jesus made a mistake, right? But wasn't there a doctor among them as well? What's going on with them? Why can't they understand? And why are they afraid to ask him? Well, as we're going to see from the rest of the text, what Jesus is doing here is exposing what's wrong, what's at the core. And what's at the core with these men being dealt with in this section is pride. Pride is building up in the hearts of the disciples. It seems that the disciples, they aren't understanding because as usual, their minds are focused on themselves rather than the truth of who Jesus is. And their focus is distracted. Instead of asking Jesus to help their unbelief like that father did for his son, they remain quiet and they're afraid to ask him. And what we're seeing that in their fear, behind that fear is pride. Now most of us here have jobs and careers, right? Or else throughout our lives we had many kinds of different kinds of jobs. Can you remember back to the very first days or the very first weeks of that new job? Do you remember how scary it is sometimes to start a new job, all kinds of new tasks? You have no idea uh, how to do it, no clue how to do your job. I remember starting in instrumentation 18 years ago. I had no experience at all. I didn't even know what instrumentation was. I didn't work in the oil and gas industry, had no idea what all these pipes all these wires, all these devices could do. I had zero understanding, and so I was afraid of what I was doing. It's a dangerous industry, right? And so what I found myself doing in my pride, in my fear, and I don't re recommend doing this, when I was faced with not understanding how to do something, I would often just try to figure it out on my own. I was too afraid to ask for help, too proud to look stupid. And I've seen this as I've also trained many apprentices over the years as well. Rather than asking questions, we often hide and we remain in fear from looking dumb. And sometimes we charge right ahead and we do really dangerous, really stupid things. And at the core of it all is pride. Because pride keeps us from asking for help. Pride keeps us from understanding. Pride can blind our eyes to the truth. And so we see that in these disciples, pride is being revealed in their unbelief. And this is an ongoing problem for them right up until Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. They're going to struggle with this, and we struggle with this all the time as well. But there is no room for pride when you're following Jesus Christ. There's no room for pride on the road of humility. Pride doubts. So let me ask you. Is your pride messing with your faith? Is pride keeping you from truly understanding the glory of the gospel? Is pride leading you into a ditch rather than on the center of the way? We're naturally prone to pride. Pride clouds our understanding. Pride muffles our ears. 
Pride focuses our eyes not on God, but on ourselves. And remember where this comes from, right back to the Garden of, of Eden. Adam and Eve ate because of their pride. They didn't believe God when he said they shouldn't eat of that tree. They believed the serpent who said, did God really say? They doubted him. They chose to go their own way. That's the way of pride. And and they doubted the way of the Lord. And in their doubt, they sinned. And then we've seen that they they were afraid. Remember, they hid themselves from God, similar to what's going on here with these disciples, being afraid to ask him. And then since they sinned, it's been passed down to us, and it's a part of our nature. It's a part of the nature of all of humanity. And as we already studied in Mark, our sin comes from within, right? It's a part of our nature. Remember back to Mark 7, verses 21 to 22. It said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and pride. And foolishness. And so the pride that we're seeing here in these disciples being revealed in doubt and disbelief is one of the most natural things to us. It's at the very core of who we are. But there's no room for it on the way of humility. And so let me ask you are you having a hard time believing the gospel? Are you having a hard time really embracing the totality of the gospel in your life? Does it sometimes just seem too far-fetched? Are you having a hard time trusting fully in Jesus Christ to do everything that he said he would do? If it is, it's highly likely that your pride is blinding your eyes and deafening your ears. You know, pride is something that needs to be redeemed out of us. It's something that needs to be repented of and we need to be restored into the right relationship of humility. It's something that is sanctified in us as God continues to work in us. And the Lord does this in us. He does this in our hearts and our minds when they are being transformed by the gospel. When we are saved... The beautiful thing is that the humility of Christ is available to us. It's available to us by his spirit, by his word. Remember we studied Colossians over a year and a half ago, Colossians 3.12. This is available to us. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, and then we see humility and meekness and patience. And so we see that humility and meekness is available to us through Jesus Christ. But if you remember back to that lesson, we have to be putting it on, right? So we have to be putting off pride and putting on Jesus Christ, putting on his humility and his meekness. That's the beginning of the process of change in our life. And so we see that pride doubts. We see that here in these disciples from the very beginning. 
They are unbelieving. They're not understanding. They're afraid to ask because of their pride. But humility believes. Humility believes. Now, of course, Jesus knows exactly what his disciples are thinking. He knows their unbelief. He knows their doubts. He knows their fears. And so with that, he confronts them. We see that in the next verses. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, this is probably Peter's house, this was kind of their, their epicenter of ministry, was always Peter's house in Capernaum. He was in the house, and he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, right? They were, they were in fear of what Jesus would say. For on the way, they argued with one another. What would they be arguing about? They were arguing. Well, the text says they were arguing about who was the greatest. And so we see here again, pride, pride, rearing its ugly head in the disciples. Jesus just finished sharing with them his ultimate humility to come, how he's going to have to die, suffer, and rise from the grave, that he's going to be killed. But his disciples are more concerned with themselves. Who's the greatest? They're not worried about what Jesus is talking about here. They don't understand him. Instead, what we see them doing is they're jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. And they're arguing among themselves. Who's the best? Who does Jesus love most? Such pride. And so it's time for another lesson from Christ. And so as Jesus is the greatest rabbi, teacher, he sits down as rabbis do to teach. Verse 35, he calls his 12 to himself and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What we see here is that pride boasts. Pride boasts, but humility serves. Pride says, I want my way. Pride says, I am the greatest. Pride says, I should be first. Pride says, I want the best seats in the house. You guys all have some pretty good seats out there, I can see, though. Pride says, I want the best seats in the house. Pride wants glory for themselves, not for God. As pride was the center of the fall of mankind, as we've already seen, before that, we need to remember something else. Even before the fall of mankind, pride was a problem. Pride was a problem with Satan. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Speaking of the fall of Lucifer, and Jesus in that text is referencing Isaiah. He's referencing Isaiah 14, 12, showing how pride brought the king of Babylon down. But even greater than that, it's showing how pride brought Satan down. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. 
I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like God. Of course, this is the king of Babylon, but it's also speaking greater to the fall of Satan himself because it's satanic to the core. Pride is satanic to the core. Jonathan Edwards, famous Puritan preacher, said, Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. Of all lusts, it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything. Nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequence. There is no one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. Pride is partnering with evil. And you think of it this way, pride is joining forces with Satan against the glory of God. So the fact that Jesus sees this in his disciples is no surprise. He knows our fallen nature. He knows us inside out, and so he teaches them. They need to be taught. We need to be taught. And he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Pride boasts, humility serves. So as we think of these 12 disciples, we need to remember that they were all handpicked by Jesus. He called them, but they were nothing great, right? Remember Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they're all fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector, hated by the Jewish society. The other Simon that was there was a military hitman. Yes, Luke was a physician, but none of them were naturally great. They were all lowly. They brought nothing to the table. They were slow to understand. And Jesus didn't pick them because they were great. He picked them because he is great. And as these men were, were going to become his apostles, they're going to become the foundation of the church. Just think about the amount of temptation towards pride for these positions. Just think about it. We already see these guys here arguing for rank and for position. What's going to happen when Jesus leaves them to themselves? So he has much to teach them. And he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And as much as Jesus would teach them, they would only truly understand as they watched their great Messiah take the punishment take the beating, and take the nails, and take the wrath of God for them in the world. Jesus is first, right? Back to Colossians again. Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme. He is God. But while he was on this earth, he was last. Jesus put others' needs before his own. Jesus is Lord. But while he was here, Jesus was a servant. It was prophesied that he would be a servant in Isaiah. The Greek word for servant literally means to serve tables, to wait on people. 
And it was one of the, the lowliest, most demeaning, undignified duties in society at that time. And Jesus is showing them that to be a servant means you must have humility, you must lower yourself, that the road ahead of them as they follow in his footsteps is a road of humility. It's a road of servanthood. It's a road of putting the needs of others before my own. And he's teaching them there's no room for pride on this road of humility. Now, the kind of humility Jesus is talking about is not, it's not natural to us, right? Even for us polite Canadians. The other day I was walking, uh, grabbing a coffee at Tim Hortons, and so I'm walking and I open the door. Another guy's coming in, he opens the door, and we're both kind of stalled out. We don't know what to do. Who's going to go? It's just kind of the Canadian way, right? Culturally, outside, we Canadians are very polite for the most part. But we have to remember that politeness doesn't always mean humility. Sometimes we can be really polite on the outside, but our hearts are at war. Just think about when you're on the Deerfoot, trying to get to work, trying to take your kids to their lessons, whatever it is. Are you thinking, while you're driving on the Deerfoot, I want to be last? How about when your lunch order is just taking way too long? Is your heart getting upset at the server and the servant? Are you thinking in your heart at that time, I must be servant of all? In our hearts, we want to be first. We want to be thought well of. We want recognition. We want position. We want to be served. But that's not the way of Christ. You know, sometimes we play the part on the outside. We, we smile, right? And we defer to others. But on the inside, there's some, there's some pride boiling up. There's some anger at the core of that as well. That's not the way of Christ. Jesus wants us to have hearts of humility, hearts of servant. He doesn't want just outward behavior modification. He wants us changed from the inside out. It's the only way that we're changed. He doesn't want us to want to be served or, want, or to want to be the greatest. He wants the depths of our hearts changed, just like Philippians 2 talks about his own humility. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can only have this in him. So this is a supernatural thing that is brought forth through our salvation and as we continue to walk in him. And we don't have this by just trying harder, by trying to force ourselves to be humble. It's ours in Christ Jesus. We have to remember that. Verse 6 of Philippians 2. The example is him, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, of us, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the ultimate picture of humility. 
Jesus is our model. He is our model of humility and servanthood, and he is the source of humility and servanthood, which teaches us that we can be last. We can be servants as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You know, as as a church, this would be one of our goals, humility, not pride. As we walk together, uh, this fall and throughout the winter, we'll be walking together in small groups as a church. We're going to be learning about what it means to be last. We're going to be learning what it means to serve others. We're going to be practicing the one another's. Uh, this fall and over, over the, the winter, we're going to be learning to apply 10 one another's of Scripture. It's really getting our eyes off ourselves and getting our eyes on each other. Serving one another. Here's a list of the things we're going to be studying. We're going to love one another. We're going to be learning about that. We're going to be learning to welcome one another. We're going to be learning to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to instruct one another, to confess to one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to comfort one another, and to stir up one another. That's going to be our study together in our small groups. If you're not in a group, we want you to be there with us to be learning what it means to walk in humility in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so the focus is not just on ourselves, what we get, what we give. Being a part of the church is what we can do for others. Yes, we're served. Yes, we grow. But naturally, as the Lord changes us, we begin to look to others' interests over ours. Pride boasts, but humility serves Pride boasts, pride doubts. We also see here in the next set of verses, verses 36 to 37, pride rejects. Pride rejects, but humility receives. Verse 36, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus was teaching with words, now he's teaching with an object lesson, as he always does. Bearing fruit in receiving others and receiving the Lord goes hand in hand. During the days of Jesus and his disciples, children, we're thinking of this child that he's bringing on his his lap here. Children didn't have the same esteem that they have today. You know, today we have a lot of focus on our children in our society, whether our children are flourishing, uh, worried about our kids' desires and, and their choices, making sure that we're hearing the voice of our children, and these are all good things. But in the first century, in the Jewish and Roman culture, children were not esteemed. They weren't esteemed like they, were, like they are today. Women and children were second-class citizens in Roman Greco culture. And so we see Jesus embracing this child, already teaching uh, the value of, of children, but taking this child in his arms. And what's happening here is he's, he's representing by this child what it means to be last, what it means to receive the lowly. 
As he brings this child into the circle of the disciples, it could have been one of Peter's kids, he picks him up in his arms and he te- he's teaching them that to receive the lowly is to truly understand that you are lowly. You're nothing great, guys. If you claim to be a true disciple, you understand that Jesus receives the lowly. That there is no standard that has to be met by him or by us. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save the sick. Jesus came to save the lowly. And we are all lowly. Naturally, we're all last. And that is the beauty of the gospel. We bring nothing to the table. We bring no greatness, no beauty, no good but he is good, and he receives the lowly. But the problem with pride is that when you're proud, you're believing a lie. When you're proud, you're believing that you are special, that you are great, that you should be esteemed, that you should be first. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. To truly believe and receive the Lord, we need to understand our desperate state apart from Him. That we're all naturally last. That we're all naturally low. That we're all naturally unworthy. To truly believe and receive the Lord, we need to understand our desperate state. That Jesus loves the lowly. Jesus loves the the last. Jesus loves the unworthy. Jesus loves the desperate. And so what he's teaching his disciples is a great lesson of the gospel. And we see also in this a picture. It's a reciprocal thing, right? As we see ourselves as lowly, unworthy, and how he receives us, it's teaching us how also to approach other people. That we should receive others, no matter of their status, no matter of their color, no matter of their culture, no matter of their capacity, no matter of their confusion. We are to receive the lowliest people. And when we do that, it reveals that we truly understand that we were lowly. We've been saved by grace. And so it's a reciprocal thing. I'm thankful for a conversation I had this week about this. That even we as the church can overlook the lowly. That sometimes we ignore those who we think aren't the same as us. Those who we may just dismiss out of our own ignorance or our own busyness. As I've talked with many people exploring church, and that's part of a church planter's life, you're constantly meeting people and talking about what they're looking for in a church. A common complaint that I've heard is that churches can be clicky. People find their little group in their church, and they stick to it. And they don't let a lot of people into that group. And they may be gathering around shared interests, maybe shared status. Maybe they just look like me. And they end up not leaving any room for others to come in to that fellowship, especially those who are on the fringe, those who are different, 
This isn't the Lord's way. When you receive the lowly, he says, you receive him, not him, but his father, right? To receive the lowly is to receive God. It's a revelation of, I know who I am, that I was lowly, and that he receives me by grace. This is the gospel. And we know that we are lowly, but he is full of grace towards us, and that should be our approach to other people. So how do we think about this even outside the church? How about our society? How about when it comes to the downtrodden, the the fringe, the poor, the imprisoned? How about the abortionists? How about the LGBTQ groups? Is there room in our life to look past the outside and see the person, to see the need, to love them, to receive them into your life. Ask yourself, do I show love to them? Now, receiving doesn't mean that we accept the sins that they are committing, but we need to look beyond the sin to the person. It's a person that needs the Lord, a person that needs to be saved, a person that needs to be loved. And it should remind us of ourselves, how God was so gracious to come to us in our lowly state and love us. So as we're in society and we are in this world, we need to be thinking about this, thinking about the words of Christ here. There's no room for pride on the road of humility. Jesus died to save the lowliest of sinners. He did. Pride would reject them, but humility would receive them and love them. And so as Jesus is preparing his disciples for how they're to follow in humility and how they need to lead, in this final section here, we see that pride divides. Pride divides, but humility unites. John said to him, verse 38, Teacher, Rabbi, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It seems that there is another gentleman in in Capernaum who would have probably seen Jesus and heard his teaching, seen his miracles. Obviously what's going on here is he's believed enough in Jesus Christ that he himself begins to cast demons out in the name of Jesus. And then Christ's disciples come along, who, if you remember just recently, they all failed at delivering a demon. They see him doing this, and they want to stop him. Because why? Because he's not following us. It's pretty interesting that John uses the term us here. It's revealing some pride here already. 
He doesn't say it's because he's not following Jesus. He says it's because he's not following us. Like he's something or they're something. Again, we see that that the disciples are beginning to think that there's something special. But Jesus ends up responding opposite than the way that they were thinking. He says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. What he's saying that if, if he's really doing this work in my name, if he's really believing in me, and if God is really doing this work through him, it's going to be proven that it was God doing it. He said, Ultimately, what he's saying there is, if, if, the, if this man is doing these things, but yet then comes along and curses Jesus, we know that it's not of God. What we're seeing here is that this man is actually truly believing who Jesus is, and Jesus is approving what he's doing. He says, for the one who is not against us is For us, Jesus is teaching them that even though they think he's outside of Christ's plan, Jesus is showing that he is in Christ's plan. His work isn't exclusive to the 12 disciples. Yes, these 12 are the foundation of the church. But the hope of the gospel is always multiplication. These 12 are the foundation, but the hope is always that other people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're believing, and they're doing the work of Christ. He's doing the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. You know, within the church around the world... We have to be careful with what divides us. If you look at the church around the world, you see that there are many types of churches. There are many types of denominations, like flavors of ice cream. There's so many different denominations within Christianity. And as much as we are different in some ways, the true universal church agrees on the primary understandings of Scripture. That's the true church, right? We may disagree on some secondary, tertiary things, you know, how we do church. But the true global church, the church of God around the world, agrees on the main things, the primary things of Scripture, right? Just a few, God is a trinity. Just a few of these things. God is a trinity, right? Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's really the core principles of true Orthodox faith. And yes, we have to be aware that there's false teaching out there. There are false churches, and Scripture clearly calls us not to partner with them. In fact, it calls us to call out false teachers. And that's biblical. But when it comes to others who are doing the true work of Jesus Christ, they are truly sharing a sound gospel, even though they may be outside of our our group or our flavor, our denomination. We have to heed the words of Christ here. He says, don't stop them. 
For the one who is not against us is for us. We see that there is freedom in the New Testament for how certain aspects of church is to be done. You know, different churches usually form out of preference choices. But when we agree on the core principles, Jesus calls us to unity. Now, like I said, it doesn't mean we partner with false churches, but for those who share the primary core understandings of what we believe, he calls us to unity. But pride would divide that. Pride would say, we're the only church. We're the only ones who truly understand. Anybody outside of us is not for us. But humility says, you may be a little different, and there's freedom in that in the New Testament. But the Lord is working through you. And with that, we're for you. Agreeing on the primary foundations, of course, I'm for you, praise the Lord, Jesus says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. When God is truly at work, is at work, he will reward them. Pride would divide that. So let us ask ourselves, are we known more for what we're against than what we're for? Ask that in your own personal life. Am I known more for what I'm against than what I'm for? We don't want to be a church that thinks that we're the only one. I know of some churches down in the backwoods of Kentucky, they believe they are the only true church, that very congregation at the base of a mountain, and they say, we're the only church. Everybody else is not. We're the only ones. We don't want to be like that. We haven't, we're not the only ones to discover the secret, right? You know, as we look at our city, there are plenty of churches out there. And there are many that look different than us. Maybe they operate a little bit differently in how they would do church together. But there are some where we agree on the primary understandings of the gospel and doctrine, and they are our brothers and they are our sisters, we are a part of the universal church of Jesus Christ together around the world. And we need to be for them, not against them. Jesus says the one who is not against us is for us. Unity. Yes, there is false teachers, there is false churches, even in our city. And that's not a prescription to just blatantly tolerate false doctrine. But in the churches that agree on those primaries, and he is truly at work, we're not to stop them. We're to be for them. The one who is not against us is for us. There's no room for pride on the road of humility. Jesus has called his disciples and he's called us to this way. It's not our way, it's his way. It's not our natural way. It's the way of humility. God hates pride. Pride always comes before a fall. So by the power of the Spirit, according to his holy word, we need to examine our hearts because pride is always there. Pride's in my heart. Pride's in your heart. We need to dig into the corners, right? With the power of the Spirit and the word, 
searching our hearts and the crevices and the cracks for the pride that is still remaining and begin to repent of it, confess it to the Lord, ask for the Lord's help. Lord, help my unbelief in this as well. And in the strength of the Spirit, put off our pride and put on the humility of Jesus Christ because pride doubts, humility believes, pride boasts, humility serves, pride rejects, Humility receives and pride divides, but humility unites. And humility is yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it is so bold and clear. We thank you how you show us areas in our life that you need to work on, that we need to repent of, that we need to confess before you. Lord, we, we do confess before you as a people that pride is a problem and that there's no room for it on the road of humility. Lord, we pray that you would begin to create humility in us, that you by your spirit would give us strength to be repenting and putting off our natural pride. As we think of these disciples, we think of them walking with the master, walking with God, walking with Jesus, and how we're also walking in those footsteps through the gospel of Mark and how you're teaching them. Lord, would you teach us? We need to be taught. We need to know the right way. And Lord, our natural flesh wants to rise up. The old man is constantly wanting to rise up. But Lord, would you put him to death in us? Lord, I pray that you would start that here with me and with others in this room that you would begin to remove the dross, that, that pride would be something that would be expelled from us all the more as we continue to walk in you and as we continue to serve and love one another as the church. Lord, we see clearly that there's no, there's no room for pride, but we also know that we can't whip up humility ourselves. It has to come from you, so we ask that you would do that in us. So this week as we walk out into this world, as we even think about receiving others, help us to look not only to our interests, but to the interests of others first. Help us to look past the outside and look at the person. Look at the heart and to love and to receive. And in doing so, that we would also share the good news of Jesus Christ. That we can be saved, that we can be free from ourselves, that we can be free from our pride, and that we can walk in humility for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.